everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Tessa, and today on our panel, we have Alex. Hello. Ari. Hello. And our special guest for this episode is Jason Etkovich and maybe his cat, Mookie. Hi, Jason. Hello. And I'm not going to pretend to meow because I'm pretty sure she's going to do that soon anyway. Nice. So who are you? <laughs> That's a really good question. I'm Jason. I work at GitHub on the special projects team. You probably know us best from doing like paper cuts type issues all across the product. Those like little things that you thought, this sucks. I hate the way this works. It's probably really easy to just like add this little feature, make my life a whole lot easier. So that's a lot of what we do. I also hang around a lot in the Node.js ecosystem, done a whole bunch of work all across the JavaScripts and stuff. Oh, and I'm in Toronto, Canada, where it's a beautiful sunny day that I'm inside. Wow. Okay. So question. Somebody told me a long time ago that people from Toronto say Toronto, but then everybody I meet from Toronto doesn't say Toronto. So what is that? Is it Toronto or Toronto? I'm actually from Montreal and I moved here like seven years ago. And Traitor. I don't think there's a correct way to say Toronto. What I do see is people with t-shirts that have like T-R-A-W-N-A, like Trana on it, which is really funny. So I don't think there's a right way, but there are a lot of wrong ways. It's like saying Atlanta. Yeah. You don't pronounce the second T, Atlanta. So I hear that you also went to art school. I did. Yeah, I studied graphic design at OCAD University, which is here in Toronto. I studied there for three years. And then actually in the last like three months of my university career, I was working full time for GitHub. And that was really dumb. It's a ton of fun, though. Wait, working for GitHub or staying at university or something else? Both. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you still do that now. So it's <laughs> well, I don't, I don't. I'm not a full-time university student anymore, thankfully. Yeah. So how'd you get into GitHub if you were doing graphic design? Like, I assume you weren't doing graphic design for GitHub. So I studied graphic design for a total of six years, three of which were in Montreal, where it's like this sort of post-high school, pre-university system. So I studied graphic design a bunch there. And then like at a certain point, I was doing freelance work and I wanted to like have a website to show people all of my freelance work. So I figured out, you know, HTML and CSS and then sort of kept going from there. And then at one point, I started doing sort of a mixture of design and development work at startups here in Toronto, part-time jobs, summer jobs, freelance stuff. And then I got an internship at GitHub where I was, I think my job title was training designer or like designer for training. It was for some of our like training material. And that sort of just evolved. And eventually there was like, we want to make this straightforward HTML website. So I said, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And then it just kind of kept going. That's cool. And to be fair, I mean, you were three months away from your university. So I get why you keep saying that. <laughs> exactly. Everybody was going to celebrate. It was going to be awesome. I feel like you're one of the more knowledgeable people I know in tech. So how did you make a transition from doing graphic design to like working full time as a developer at GitHub? That seems like a really big, intimidating change. It never felt intimidating because it never got to this like zero to one point. Like I was never designer one day, engineer the next day. It was more like I was doing some design work. I had to do a little bit of coding work. 
the graph just kind of shifted in one direction over time. It especially changed when, as I was an intern, some of my other intern friends and, and their coworkers, they were sort of starting up this project called Probot, which is a framework for building GitHub integrations. Open source project started by a lot of GitHub employees. And I said, I want to help. I know, you know, enough to be helpful, I think. And then that sort of took on a, a whole life of its own. My internship ended. I kept working on Probot. And then eventually I came back to GitHub as a contractor, basically using Probot to build this thing within GitHub. So it just sort of like flowed in this really opportune way. Sounds like quite the career development. Yeah, it was a lot of right place, right time. So I'd like to hear more about the the paper cuts because I feel like it's like that meme of when you apply to a job and then you make one PR for that thing that's bugging you and then you put in your mm -hmm. notice. Is it a lot of those kinds of things? It is like exactly that. You know, like you see a button that you wish was like on the left instead of the right side. You know, 100% of people feel that way, but for whatever reason, it just hasn't been changed. Our team is the one to go and change that thing. And it extends to features really, really small to like slightly medium sized. A couple weeks ago, somebody on our team shipped support for surfacing citations in repositories. So like you look at a repository, they have a, a citation file, sort of like a license file. And so now in the GitHub UI, we like pull that out display it properly, make it really easy for people to cite a repository in like essays or, or documents or whatever, that kind of stuff. It's like, who's going to do it? Other product teams have priorities around like larger features or performance stuff or, you know, things that they absolutely have to own as part of like the repositories team. But also like, we know that these things should get done. So who's going to do them? Special projects. Yeah, citing books is so annoying. I never even thought about having to cite a repo, like these lines, this file. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's a lot of things like that where our team is very like community focused. We'll look through all kinds of different feedback forums like Twitter, obviously, but a couple of different repositories on GitHub, like feedback. We have a feedback discussion and we will like legitimately say like, oh, look, this person's asked for this feature could we do it? And then we do a bunch of research and like try to figure out if it's actually going to be really useful for a lot of people. Most of the time it is. And we just go out and do it. So if we wanted new features, like where should we go and complain loudest? At Gloomy Loomy. No. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this, but I will anyway. I think Twitter is probably a really good place. Nat Friedman, if you at mention him on Twitter, most of the time he will respond, especially if it's like a well thought out idea. A lot of the time, my team's product managers will look through those Twitter requests. There is also, I think, github.com slash github slash feedback. There's a discussions thing in that repo where you can just propose ideas, propose, you know, bugs or anything like that. Right. So it sounds very much like Slack. I hear they also troll Twitter to look for like new ideas. Yeah, well, I mean, that's where people are complaining. And if people are complaining, it means that there's something we should fix or improve. 
So yeah, I'm curious to hear more about this research and how much you're involved in it, because I don't know if this is the case for Alex and Ari, but I feel like a lot of times from what I've seen and what I've heard about, like basically the PM will be like, hey, we should do this feature because I think it's good or because our customer said they wanted this exact feature the way that I'm proposing it. And then we just go ahead and build it. Yeah, that's a really good question. Our team works in these really tight iteration loops. Like we won't take on a project that will extend past two-ish weeks. It's more of a guideline than a rule. But if a feature request or a bug fix or something like that is going to take more than two weeks, we just won't do it. There are other teams that should be responsible for those like larger, more complicated pieces of work. So a lot of our research from the engineering side is just trying to understand the feasibility of it. And because we operate across the product, no individual engineer can be an expert in every part of the product. So there's a lot of like understanding, talking to people, talking to the teams that actually do own that part of the product to try to like understand, is this a thing that we could do? Have you tried to do this in the past? And sometimes like if we choose not to move forward with it, all of that research is really valuable. Like that's the thing that we can deliver to the to the owning team so that if they do want to take it on, look, we just did a week's worth of research work for you. Nice. Yeah. Do you feel like your design background comes in handy for the research and iteration phase? Not so much on this team because we've been working with some really, really great designers on this team that just kind of like do the best work I've ever seen. It's really awesome. On other teams that I've worked on at GitHub, I've had to do a little bit of like actual visual graphic design work. But then there's also the question of like, how do things work? We sort of approach these very vague, sometimes prompts. And part of learning that sort of design mindset is understanding like, how does a person approach this thing? What are the you know various touch points that they have to consider? And so, you know, as we're doing that research, we're trying to understand all of the systems that a particular product feature touches, right? We're talking about like issues. Sure. Okay. We want to add, actually, this is a perfect example. Somebody on our team added support for rendering code in issue titles. So like if you do backtick, like a markdown code fence thing in an issue title, how does that get rendered? Well, it's pretty straightforward, except that where are issue titles rendered across all of GitHub? How does it influence the API, right? So all of these things, you sort of have to like see that holistic view of. And I think design school was very helpful for me for that. Yeah, Alex also is really into design. Yes, graphic design is my passion. I may have just uh, (laughs) taken your suggestion and tweeted at Nat Friedman to see if we can get an option so that we can have GitHub in Comic Sans. Mm-hmm. We'll see. I'll let, I'll keep everybody posted if uh, any if that goes anywhere. So well, Alex, yeah, it was really nice having you on the show. Hi. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have to admit, aside from view being larger than six kilobytes, GitHub not being in Comic Sans was really stressing me out and keeping me awake every night. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go back to something you said earlier about community and citations. Are you able to weigh in on that new like machine learning feature that GitHub has been rolling out for the last couple of months? Yeah, GitHub Copilot. I can only give you a like non-representative view 
I didn't work on Copilot, so I can only tell you about it as a consumer of it. It's very cool. I think it's a really, really nice experience as you're writing code to just have somebody like suggest things to you. As far as the like licensing stuff, I can't say anything about it because I don't know anything about it. That's, that's about as much as I can say. Well, I haven't tried it, so it's more than I can say. It's very cool. I'll say that. I was using it for a long time, especially as I was starting to use libraries in Ruby that I hadn't used before. It saves you quite a lot of time going back and forth from the docs. Docs are still super important, obviously, but it helps you answer the question that you didn't know to ask yet. Like, what is this API called? It just suggests it for you. Yeah, I can see it as being a really good like starting point like leverage thing and not like a this will now write your entire application for you sort of a thing. Exactly. It's not going to write somebody's application. It's not going to replace a human being writing code. It's the Gmail autocomplete of your coding experience. Or the LinkedIn autocomplete. We don't use the L word here. (laughs) Working on projects that don't last longer than two weeks sounds like it must be really exciting. I'm kind of jealous. It is very fun. It's also like, it it is the most humbling experience because as soon as you get to be not an expert, but as soon as you become knowledgeable in one area of the product, boom, you're shifted over to some totally different area. You have to like spend a week reading through code just to understand what's going on again. But in that respect, it's super fun because you get to learn all the time. We do also take on larger projects which we call explorations. And those are like really sort of like big bets around what could GitHub do that would really change how GitHub works or like a whole new product or like that kind of level of exploration. And we don't try to like always see it through to the end. A lot of the time we'll just spend a couple of weeks building something, getting it to like relatively functional, maybe a bit past MVP and like something that you could see yourself using. And then sometimes we'll just shut it down. And that's usually around six weeks to eight weeks kind of thing. Yeah, I always feel like when you start a new job, that first few weeks or a few months that you have to get used to a new code base is super stressful. So how do you handle like looking at new code all the time? Because you're saying it's exciting. And I'm like, mm, is it? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's, it's hard sometimes. Like it truly, truly is. The best way that I approach it is to just know that I'm going to feel really dumb for a bit. Like I'm just going to not know what I'm talking about. I'm, I have to be open to asking questions where it doesn't sound like I know what I'm talking about because I don't in our company, like people are generally really open to helping. And so if I pop into somebody's Slack channel and say, Hey, I'm doing this thing, please help me. They'll at least point me in the right direction. And then it really is just a lot of focus time. Like my team doesn't have a lot of meetings, partially because we need a lot of time sitting down, reading through code, taking notes, understanding what we're looking at. And that's hard to do if your day is broken up by 30 minute meetings. That would be nice to not have very a lot of meetings during a day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's definitely one of the bigger perks of my team. <laughs> So speaking of everyone being open, I heard that you are very excited (laughs) about a new open graph image generator. Can you tell us more about that? 
only because of that incredible segue. Thank you. Someone appreciates me. (laughs) This is the best at segues. I just want to say that right now. (laughs) I can tell. That was incredible. Yeah, so one of the explorations that my team did was around an open graph image generator. So open graph images, those are when you share a URL to something on like social media, like Twitter or whatever, Twitter or that social media platform will scrape that website, that link that you posted and collect a bunch of information about it, including an image. So oftentimes you'll see on Twitter, a URL is shared and you'll see this like really nice preview image and like a description of that website. So we took on a project to make an image generator for github.com URLs. So think like a repository or an issue, you share a URL to that on a social media platform, and we generate this like really nice preview image that shows like the language breakdown of that repository, how many like stars and forks and that kind of stuff it has. So as you're scrolling through your Twitter feed or your LinkedIn feed or whatever, you sort of get all of that contextual information without having to drill deeper into the link itself. Just makes for a nicer browsing experience. Yeah. Love not having that doom scroll interrupted. Mm -hmm. In our initial issues and stuff about it, the primary goal was to replace people's giant faces in Twitter feeds because like nobody wants to see my giant face in their Twitter feed. I mean, but now that they they decreased image cropping, that could be pretty fun, right? Just scroll <laughs> for like all the way down. And so is this is this the thing that I was asking you about with the cards where you see people's photos and I was like, how would you deal with like, what if somebody doesn't want their photo? Yeah, that's the one. And our thinking with that is that we're already sharing all of that information. So just changing the template of it didn't feel like a legitimate change. Yeah, like not an increase in Mm -hmm. revealing information. That makes sense. So what inspired the team to work on that project? I think our CEO, Nat Friedman, actually just said, hey, this is kind of a weird experience. Can we do something? And our team said, well, yeah, sure we can. Let's try it out. And we did. We built this little node server that collects some stuff from the GitHub GraphQL API and then puts it into an HTML template, renders that in Puppeteer, which is kind of like a programmatic Chrome browser. It's called a headless browser, so there's no like actual UI. It just kind of like does browser things invisibly. And then we output an image and there we go. And it, it was really just somebody being like, hey, can we make this a better experience? There was no like metrics or anything like that that we were actually trying to accomplish. It really was just trying to add polish to the overall GitHub platform experience. Oh, yeah. So this is a question I've been having lately then. So if you're trying to work on a project, right, but you don't have quantitative metrics to measure, or let's say the metrics that you're measuring are not really... They're like the things kind of thing that maybe like execs or salespeople like to see, but they don't really measure the quality of your work. How do you justify your work to like your product manager or your manager, the CEO? That's such a good and difficult question. It's so hard. Yeah. Cause like, how do you prioritize a project 
how do you say like, oh, yes, this is important if you don't have the data to back it up? And how do you get the data to back it up if you don't prioritize that project? Where in that loop does it fit to get all of that data? I think it really depends on the size of the project that you're looking at. If collecting data is going to take two weeks and actually doing the thing is going to take two weeks, just do the thing. See if it works. See if people have a positive response and do it in a way that it's easy to roll back if people actually hate it. We use feature flags quite a lot for shipping really any kind of change so that if it's causing bugs, if it's causing problems, if it's just causing people to be upset, we can just turn it off without having to like redeploy anything. And then I think for larger projects, you do need some amount of data to say like, is this three-month project going to be worth it? I think you have to be willing to put in a little bit of time to collect that data. And sometimes it's really hard and I hate doing it. But it's important because otherwise you won't know if you've made a positive impact three months down the line. Right. So in other words, get some kind of baseline of whatever it is you want to measure it so that you can show that there was a change or no change. Yes, exactly. And if you didn't get that baseline, just look at Twitter. And if they're happy, then you did a good job. Yeah, I mean, it it sure sounds like Nat spends a lot of time on Twitter. So I'm going to be expecting like, code spaces or VS code in Twitter pretty soon. I want to edit my repos from Twitter. I'll just tweet out stuff and it'll update my repo. Yeah. Well, I know really this is true for most companies, but anytime GitHub releases a like larger product feature like code spaces, product managers and engineers will be like looking at Twitter and looking at Twitter hashtags and whatever, looking for that kind of feedback that you only get when you release something to a bajillion people on the internet. Is that a technical term? Yes, a bajillion, yeah. Mm -hmm. They didn't teach you that in math class, Ari? I guess, you know, maybe that was DiffyQ and and higher. I just, yeah, they did not. (laughs) They taught me that in art class. Oh, see, there we go. Didn't go to art school. That's how. Wait, so, okay, important question. In Toronto or Toronto, is it math? Or maths? Math? No S, I think. Because everything is spelled Queen's English. So I was like, is is it maths (laughs) as well? I will have the same reaction if you ask me to do math or to do maths, which will be no. I don't know if that helps you. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. So I feel like it's really nice to have all of this information automatically populate in Twitter because I feel like having to do a lot of manual work that you have to do over and over again. Like we have a lot of that for the podcast and it can get mundane sometimes. So yeah, I don't know. How can we make our lives easier with software, Jason? Ah, such a good question. She really is just the best at saying ways. It's impressive. So there are a whole lot of ways to automate all kinds of different workloads, right? Automating, it's really just about like finding the things that you do over and over and seeing what parts of it you can automate through some kind of programming or some kind of like creative means. It's not really all about writing code. Like sometimes you're just stitching together different services and different applications. You know, you send an email to all of the people. I got an email when I joined the podcast, right? That's automation, right? Otherwise you would have to manually send out that email. 
So I think as soon as you can identify those things, you can already start to automate all kinds of nifty workflow things. With the Open Graph Image Generator, that's a really interesting one because we really didn't do anything novel with that. There are a ton of really great blog posts out there that walk you through how Puppeteer works, how you would take a screenshot with Puppeteer, and then how you sort of collect all of the information and put together an HTML template that goes into Puppeteer. That's kind of where you can get really creative. So, you know, if you wanted to make an open graph image generator for all of the Enjoy the View podcasts, maybe you could pull from like the podcast's RSS feed, put all of that together into a template and take a screenshot of it. Or, you know, maybe there's an API or like, who knows, world's your oyster. So do you also, that was a question I had earlier, actually, do you also automate like the alt text for the image? So that's also a meta tag on the HTML payload. So, you know, you share a link, Twitter or whatever, they crawl that whole website, all of the HTML, and they look for very specific meta tags like OG colon image and OG colon image alt. So that would be the alt tag for the image. There's really not a whole lot we can automate there because it's like this image that we generated. So what we do is I think we take the repository's description. It would be really cool, actually, if we did like sort of annotated the parts that you're looking at, like the number of stars and that kind of stuff. That'd be neat. Sounds like you got another paper cut. (laughs) Steal it from yourself. Yeah. Now he knows what he's doing for the next two weeks. But like, that's exactly what it is. You know, we talk to people, they have good ideas. Who's going to do them? That's what we're here for. Yeah, my commission fee is a low, low one pick of Mookie per idea. I can do that. I can send you so many pictures of Mookie. Yeah, I'm wondering like what kind of pitfalls or like good patterns you've seen working in automation. Because like one headache I ran into with the specific automation service we use is that if you set up all of the triggers that you need and then need to change the order, you've got to delete and re-add things. But I feel like that's very specific to our service. I'm wondering if there are like general things that people should watch out for or keep in mind. Inevitably, you'll write a piece of automation and then say, oh, but we actually need like this other input or we need it to compose within this like larger automation workflow. Um, I'm thinking specifically about GitHub Actions because they have an API for like passing information to a GitHub Action specifically so that you can compose them in other workflows. And I think that whole system evolved over time because we started, I say we, I had nothing to do with it, but we started to see that automation tools didn't just live on their own. They didn't exist solely in a bubble. They work within these like larger workflows. If you build your automation tool in an inflexible way, you'll really regret it later. And I think the other thing is automating too much because you absolutely can do that. If it's not actually going to save you time, right? If you're like constantly trying to fix this tool and it's causing so much headache then like, just don't automate it, you know, make your life easy. Automation is not supposed to make your life harder. That makes me think of like Wallace and Gromit where he has like the thing that makes him breakfast and puts on his Mm -hmm. overalls and like, yeah, it just doesn't work out that well. Yeah. Like imagine if every time he did that, 
oil like splattered all over him from the from the breakfast, right? That would be making his life harder. Why would he do that? Just like stop, make your own breakfast. Yeah, I haven't I haven't worked that much with automation beyond setting up like pre and post commit hooks. I think using Husky or a package like that, Alex, Ari, have you done a lot of automation? Nope. <laughs> I've done a little bit of automation. I guess I've done a little bit more than just a little bit of automation. I've done some automation. <laughs> Mostly using like listening for web hooks and stuff like that and Twitch stream stuff where Yeah. I think the Twitch like API ecosystem is so fascinating because there's like these things that happen in real time, right? You're on a live stream and there's just so much that you can do with all of that information. Think of it this way, you could have like a live stream that's ongoing and then ten minutes in a tweet automatically fires. Like that is a thing that you can do. And would probably result in more Twitch live stream engagement, right? So that kind of stuff is super interesting to me. Now I want an automation that like if somebody sends a first chat message when I'm streaming, there's like a little audio that plays for me being like, hi, chat. Yeah. That would be fun. hundred percent. I'll help you build that. There we go. Thank you. Yeah. Or I'll just like watch you build it on stream and it'll be cool. Oh my God. (laughs) That would be great. Yeah. Let's do it. But yeah, I uh, I mostly set up hooks because people didn't want to use the linter, but also we would like the build wouldn't build without the linter, but also we wanted to change linting rules, but nobody wanted it to get in the way of committing. So I was like, fine, I'll put a pre-push hook so it'll check before you push up to GitHub or not GitHub, Bitbucket. But then people were like, oh, then I can't push up regularly. And I'm like, but you can commit regularly if you're not going to run the linter. Like, yeah, I don't know. You try to make it easier, but it's also hard to get everyone on the same page. Yep. I was like that with prettier. Yeah. I was about to say prettier. Yeah. I I did not want something touching the code that I just wrote. And then I used it enough to be like, oh, wait, this is actually like kind of nice. But it took me a while to get there. I think it's hard to change people's minds sometimes. I love prettier. I get mad when a repo doesn't have it set up because like, you know, Sometimes I'm copying and pasting between files and maybe the nesting was a little different. Oh my God, when I paste it and it doesn't just automatically have the right indentation, I am so mad. Because I'm like, oh, I have to indent this myself. Oh my God. (laughs) I think before Prettier came out, I had an extension like Beautify or something. So I would just highlight Mm -hmm. and click Beautify, but... Yeah, I mean, I guess if it if it comes in at the end after I'm done writing and then I don't have to keep on interacting with the code while I'm working on it, I would be okay with it. But yeah, I think for everybody, how often they want something like that to happen is very different. And so that's another struggle if you want to automate things. Mm-hmm. VS Code settings, just saying. I will say that maybe Prettier's name, I don't mind it as much as Standard JS. I really don't like that they called it Standard JS. That really bugs me. That's fair. I really like standard JS like as a rule set. I like the the code that it lints. But yeah, I can appreciate that the naming is not well loved. Yeah, I just feel like so many things that I see there are things that I I don't usually see elsewhere unless people are using standard JS. Which brings me to a very important question. Semis or no semis? <clears throat> no semicolons. Yes. You hear that, Sam? (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, Tessa just shouted out somebody who... Um, is like, wrong. Yeah, it is definitely wrong. But we could easily argue for an hour and still not change each other's minds. But also, like, if you're going to write code with semicolons, you do you. Whatever makes you happy. But I don't want to. I would argue that the semicolon versus no semicolon debate should be centered around what does your full stack look like? If you're using Python, no semicolons is probably a good idea because Python mm-hmm. doesn't use semicolons. If you're doing PHP on the back end, you do need semicolons. So having no. semicolons on mm-hmm. the front end, probably Disagree. a good idea so that you keep it consistent across the entire code base. Nah. I like that. That makes sense. I don't know. This is reminding me of when I worked with some Java developers that were like, we should write our JavaScript like Java because we write Java on the back end, so we should keep them the same on the front and back. That sounds so awful. I mean, if we can do whatever we want, let's center a line code while we're at it. I think that would be good. <laughs> or maybe even right align it. Yeah. Yeah, I will, I will say I've been trying to learn Rust lately, and remembering the semicolons is so hard. And it, the compiler doesn't know what to say, like, oh you forgot a semi. It's just like unexpected token. And I'm like, I feel like it, it shouldn't be that hard to be like, you forgot the semi, but I keep on forgetting the semi and that's painful. I just don't like reaching for the semicolon. I don't know. Like my pinky just, it doesn't find it naturally. I don't know why, but it does not. So my hot take is I like the semicolon as long as whatever linter prettier thing i'm using does it for me and i don't have to think about it see that's the problem with thinking about it i spend so much time learning all of the asi rules the automatic semicolon insertion and then learning semis and then when i saw that view cli by default creates a project without semis i spent so long probably as long as it took me to learn to put the script tag on top to unlearn semis and now if i would have to relearn it again oh it would be such a struggle my thing is is that i remember like half the time to put one so like internally within my own code i'm just super inconsistent i'm like i'm at the yes, end of the line semicolon true. then i'm typing something enter typing something enter typing something enter and you're like spaces when i feel like it <laughs> yeah and so uh yeah, that's why i i appreciate the automation tools and the linters being able to do that for me because it's been years since I used a semicolon. What even is semicolon? We'll never know. I do use them when I'm writing English a lot, but that's yeah. that's about it now. It's funny because I think my biggest gripe with them is that I don't find them like a visually attractive character in my code. And it's like sitting not. at the end of the line hanging out. But in, in prose, in English, like semicolons fitting into a sentence it just like breaks it up and it's so nice i'm very inconsistent it's like an unfinished thought right in english then in code it's like no i'm finished now exactly yes no finish is like end curly brace duh (laughs) (laughs) oh i'm so embarrassed called out this is making me think back to like my first job I really liked tabs, but I spent so long getting used to using like the two spaces before my first job because I was sure that everybody there would be like, you have to use spaces. And then I started and my first team was just like a very, we don't care how you write your code as long as you keep it readable and like commented. 
Did we really just go down Tabbed versus Spaces Lane? I mean, we can. <laughs> I mean, you just did. All right, Ari, give it to us. What? what? Oh, I I actually have no strong preference. I use the tab key to insert two spaces. <laughs> so, all right, I'll give my hot take then, since we're going down this route. Tabs are correct. <gasps> Why? Accessibility. You can resize them. Because if you want them to look two spaces, they can look two spaces. If you want them to look four spaces, they can look four spaces. It doesn't matter. Oh, actually, paper cut. So when I was learning coding, my group hated me because I used tabs. And then in GitHub, it would look like eight spaces. And so they wouldn't use it only for that reason. Because they were like, we don't like looking at it on GitHub. And I'm like, but you're looking at it in your editor. And they were like, no. Why, Jason? Why? That's such a good paper cut. I know. I, I would be surprised. No, no, I mean, it's like, thank you for telling me. Yeah. I would be surprised if it's not already on our, like, project board. And if it's not, I'm going to put it there. I'll be watching for it. Okay, I'll let you know. I'll keep you updated. I'm going to at Nat Friedman. <laughs> That's the only reason I'm anti-tabs is because of the horrid effects it has when viewing it on GitHub. Yeah, like, that That sucks. It shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. It shouldn't do that. Uh, yeah, I wonder why that is. No. Yeah. I'll fix it. We'll fix it. One more Mookie pick for me. Mm-hmm. Did we talk about the cool thing that GitHub started doing recently? Today? Oh, GitHub Code Spaces? Yeah, that thing. Yeah, that was released yesterday, August 11th. I don't work on the Code Spaces team, and I don't want this to be an advertisement, but it's really cool, and I've been using it a lot, so you should check it out. It's kind of like a, a virtual machine for all of your projects in the cloud so that you can you know, code on an iPad or on an iPhone or on a, you know, anything that has an internet connection and a browser or VS Code. Yeah, it's, it's VS Code in your browser, but also VS Code in your VS Code so that you can VS Code from anywhere with VS Code. Yeah, I, I will not use code spaces from the browser because the keybinds are all weird. <laughs> so I only use it from VS Code. And it's like, why would you even bother if you're going to be using your local VS Code? So that my MacBook's fans don't spin when I run like anything. Yeah, because now true. all of the like, processing is in the cloud. So I don't have to worry about that. In the cloud. Mm-hmm. That's Which means cool. that I can add more fonts to the thing and make it look even better. Exactly. It was great. Yep. Nice. Yeah, I feel like shortcuts in the browser are, are always tricky. Like when I used to edit with Pixlr and they'd be like commands T or control T is like your transform shortcut. But that obviously interferes with the tab shortcut. And you don't want to override those. But also. Yeah, we just added more shortcuts when you're writing markdown in github so like you you know you open a new file you start writing a markdown file and we had to do a bunch of research to make sure that we weren't conflicting with anything to make sure that like you said command and control work properly across operating systems it's really interesting on that note let's wrap up so jason if people want to learn more about you and all that you do where can they find you on the internet the best place is twitter Twitter.com slash Jason Etco. Everybody always spells it wrong, so I'm sure it'll be a link somewhere. They do? Yeah, it, I often get like ECTO, 
but it's actually ETCO. Ecto, um, like a Ghostbuster. Okay. Yeah, exactly. like Ghostbusters fans, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like Jason and Company, Jason Etco. Yeah, I also get a lot of Jason, etc., which is <laughs> kind of funny, but like not accurate at all. <laughs> I also get a lot of Jason, like J S O N. Mm. That's fine. I'm cool with that one. You don't know who it is, but you're cool with it. Mm-hmm. Nice. And uh, with that, it's time to move on to this week's picks. Ari, would you like mm. to go first? Sure. My pick this week is a mobile puzzle game that came out like a bajillion years ago mm-hmm. uh, in That's 2008. Technical term. Yeah, technical term. Yeah. <laughs> but then I just recently like started playing again. Uh, it's called Marple. It's just like a logic puzzle. I don't know. It's something that's really good to kill a few minutes because like, I think my average puzzle time is like three minutes, 40 seconds. So if you just like need to kill a few minutes, but also want to feel like you're doing something productive with your brain, I highly recommend Marple. Nice. This is reminding me of when Ben used to recommend games and they all sounded like work. (laughs) (laughs) Alex, what are your picks for this week? So my pick this week, we just started watching because I'm super late to the game on this one. We started watching She-Ra and the Princesses of Power on Netflix, and it is super fun. We're enjoying it greatly. That is my pick. If you're looking for something fun and lighthearted to watch, go watch She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. I think I will. Are you a princess of power? Oh, yeah, yeah, I am. I am a princess of power. So there you go. And Jason, what are your picks for us this week? So my cat Mookie just came to live with me. And now anytime I leave my apartment, I want to know what she's doing. So I got this wise camera. It's like a security camera. It's really inexpensive. And it's like super high quality. I'm, I'm very impressed with it. I've only had it for like two days, but it's pretty cool. So now I can see where she's snoozing. And if she's trying to get into any like treats or something while I'm out. Very excited. Nice. I like how now that your cat is living with you, you're like, I need more, more <laughs> pictures of my cat versus like when she wasn't living with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, I always need more pictures of the cat, but I want to make sure that she's like, now she's in a new space and I don't want her getting like stuck in the dishwasher or something. I don't know. I don't know what she'll do, but she'll get stuck somewhere. Maybe she'll get stuck in a code space. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> The vast majority of my text exchanges with my partner are just pictures of the cat doing yeah. cute stuff. As it should be. I mean, and we're afraid, you know, the cat will move before like the person gets in from the other room. So like, you know, naturally, though, the you know, my partner's like 15 feet away from me, technically still sending a picture of the cat. <laughs> so you might say he's more like a partner. <laughs> It was really nice having you on the podcast. <laughs> I'm really glad to see that she does this everywhere. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I respect it. Thank you. Got, gotta protect the brand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, Jason, we've been asking all of our guests to tell us more about their headphones lately, but you're not wearing any. I'm not wearing yeah. them, but yeah. I'm holding them up to the camera now. These are the Steel Series 
Arctis Pro Wireless. I was bullied into buying them, and they're actually really good. I'm happy with them. So good that you're not wearing them. (laughs) (laughs) I have, like, a proper microphone, and I like speakers for when I listen to music on my desk. So these are really just for, like, playing video games and yelling at my teammates in Valorant. Usually they're all my friends, though. I don't yell at strangers. (laughs) Why not? It's fun. I mean, I have never... Yeah, if you feel like yelling at a stranger, at no. <laughs> anyway. Games are too toxic. And finally, it's time for my picks. So we already talked about this a bit earlier, but Code Spaces and VS Code in the browser seems really cool. Yesterday, Jason and my buddy, let's, let's call him a pal, our pal Joel tweeted out, like, go to any GitHub repo and press the period button, wink, which I guess it has a semicolon in it. So like semicolon paren. And I did, and then VS Code popped up, and I was like, wow, that is super cool. Seems like a much nicer way to navigate a repo online than uh, the typical search and stuff. I know GitHub also has its own shortcuts for that. I just never learned them. Yeah, so that's pick number one. Pick number two is The Matrix, the original movie that came out in 99 or whatever, because I have to watch it again for homework. So I'll be doing that soon. It was 98. Okay, you no, looked really offended, no but like I didn't. <laughs> you know what? All right, we're going to learn today. No, it was 99. 99. What do you mean the original <laughs> Matrix movie? There was only ever one Matrix movie, so. Alex, get out. Nope. Isn't there like a fourth <laughs> one coming out soon? But without oh, Morpheus, because I, yeah, I read an article with Lawrence Fishburne being like, I'm not in the fourth one. I'd watch it. Yeah, just to see for sure. Cool. And on that note, that is all for this week's episode. If you aren't following us on Twitter, what are you doing? We're going to be tweeting Mookie pictures all next. No, I'm kidding. I don't have permission to say that, Uh, but we might. Maybe. I'll I'll give them to you if you'll tweet them. Yes. The world needs to see this adorable cat. They really do. We'll be tweeting Mookie pictures during the week of this episode. So follow us on Twitter at EnjoyTheViewCast. Alex is going to start a new Twitter account for us called EnjoyTheViewCats. Yes. We're going to have. Anytime we get pictures of our cats, we will put them up on Enjoy the View Cats. So do I need to just start sending them to the group chat? Yeah, we'll fi- we'll figure out a way you, that you we can, can like... You log into Twitter, Ari, on another yeah. account. And <laughs> no, because I will, I will inevitably not realize which account I'm on, and then I'll pull a Donna Meagle. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, posting cats on your personal account? Reputation ruined. We'll, we'll, well, maybe we'll work on some automation for this and we'll automate the Enjoy the View Cats account. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and don't forget to like and subscribe and smash that bell icon. <laughs> Be sure to subscribe to the show. And if you have time, leave a review. I hear it really helps us out. Finally, remember to tell at least one friend what you enjoyed about today's episode and how adorable Mookie is. Thanks for listening. And until next time, enjoy the view. Thank <laughs> you.